Hey everybody, I'm Thomas Hardy and I'm going to be reading John 6 verses 41 through 71. At this time, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so is the one who feeds on so the one who feeds on me will live because of me this is the bread that came down from heaven your ancestors ate manna and died but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever he said this while teaching at the synagogue in capernaum on hearing it many of his disciples said this is a hard teaching who can accept it aware that his disciples were grumbling about this jesus said to them does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to, the me, come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. The word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, like Julie said earlier, uh, I'm one of the pastors. My name is Joel. And if you're just visiting with us this morning, we're really thankful to have you here uh, I want to echo what Julie said earlier. It's really thankful for all of the fathers at Resurrection City Church, and um, I hope that you feel celebrated today. 
uh, as you are celebrated for the awesome work that you're doing. Um, and so thank you for uh, caring well for those that God has put uh, in your charge. Um, we are uh, working through the book of John, as we have been here for a little while now, but we're kind of transitioning, like Julie mentioned earlier, into a kind of new mini-series uh, within the book of John. Um, and th- this series is about uh, kind of like what happens when, so Jesus has come, right? Jesus has is, is come, he is God, he, he has come to reveal himself and reveal his plans uh, to, to the world. And that's what the book of John is about. But what happens when um, you find opposition to that? And, th- and that's what happens to Jesus here. When, when you're a prophet, when you're preaching stuff that makes people uncomfortable, even if it's the most glorious message in the history of humankind, you're going to fu- invite some opposition onto yourself. And so we're going to be talking about that for the next few weeks here within the book of John as Jesus starts to really uh, find pushback to what he's doing within the book. Uh, Earlier on, people are excited about what he's doing. No one disagrees with healings and with um, uh, all-you-can-eat bread and fish miracle buffets, right? No, No one has a problem with that. But Jesus starts to say some stuff that people are not always necessarily huge fans of. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to deal with opposition in the midst of that. And I'm really excited for this this series here. Um, And so, like Julie said at the top, we are going to be doing question and answer, or maybe question and response is the better uh, way to put it afterwards. So if you have a uh, question, something that arises during during the message here that's related to what we're talking about, Feel free to throw it in the comments, and, uh, and and I'll do my best to respond to it after we're done. Um, so let, let me continue kind of talking about what this opposition looks like, though, and, and setting up what we're going to be doing for the next uh, few weeks. So in the book of John, unlike the other three Gospels, uh, Jesus doesn't really do like what we think of as spiritual warfare. Uh, there aren't exorcisms. There's no specific confrontation with uh, Satan or the Satan uh, figure in in the books uh, in the Gospels that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, there there is no wilderness temptation uh, narrative, and so John for John that stuff is largely left out. But there is actually one really important uh, verse in the book in chapter twelve in verse thirty one where Jesus says this. Now is the time for judgment of, on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So this is kind of John's statement of, of um, spiritual warfare, of what, what's going on when, when we, when we ex- see Jesus experience opposition. This is where John is sort of cluing us into that. Uh, and the prince of the world is obviously, uh, obviously Satan or, or the Satan, the, the opposition, the adversary true God that we find throughout scripture, kind of from, from the beginning to the very end, we, f- we see him popping in and out of the narrative at different key points um, a- a- with a goal of, of disrupting God's plans. And, and we talk a lot about the kingdom of God uh, as Christians. We talk a lot about it at Res City. We, we pray it every few weeks when we do the Lord's Prayer. Ju- Julie talked about that th- this this morning. We're praying uh, that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And so w- we, we spend a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God. But I think one thing that we miss sometimes when we talk about the kingdom of God coming to earth is that that's an invading force. The kingdom of God coming is, is not coming into a vacuum. It's coming into the midst of a place where there's already another king, kingdom operating, king and kingdom operating. Uh, and that, that's clear throughout the Gospels and in other parts of the Bible. And th- this isn't so much of a, this is definitely not in a militaristic sense. So if you're thinking crusades right now, uh, you're, you're thinking about 
uh, onward Christian soldiers in a sort of like militaristic sense, because there definitely are pockets of Christianity today and throughout history that kind of view the kingdom of God as, as maybe coming through force. That's not what I'm talking about here. Uh, but I am talking about the kingdom of God coming uh, to um, push out this, this kingdom that is ruled by d- these dark spiritual forces uh, that are doing their best and have been doing their best to twist God's good creation into uh, an actual hellhole on earth for for for, for centuries now uh, and but but all the while trying to convince humans that that this is actually a better world this is a better way to live or this is actually what god wants us to do um instead of living in the way that is revealed to us through jesus as he comes uh in uh, in the in the gospels and 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 in what god is revealing in the bible throughout throughout the entirety of it and and as we talk through uh, racism and, and and just the systematic injustice that everyone is sort of coming face to face with, uh, maybe for the first time, maybe not for the first time, but in new, fresh ways here in the last few weeks, we have to be conscious to put that within the context of, of a kingdom that exists already and that is hell-bent, literally, on twisting God's good creation and turning it into uh, not that. And so, uh, and so when we think about the kingdom of God coming to earth now, we have to think of it in the context of another regime that is fighting back, that is pushing back on that. And so a good analogy, a good picture of what this looks like, I think is found, and we look back at the historical event of D-Day. Um, and so this is, uh, this is from World War II. This is on June 6, 1944. So actually we just celebrated the anniversary of it a, f- uh, a few weeks ago now. Um, and this is, this is the turning point in World War II. If you're not a, a World War II buff, you're about to get a little bit of history uh, for it. But if you, when you think about the allies, uh, America, a lot of the European forces, other countries that have joined together to try to stop Hitler and the Nazis, this is the moment, even though the war wasn't actually won, where, where the things turned and, 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 and people knew for the first time, okay, this is going to work out in the end for the forces of good. Uh, the Allies landed on Normandy, France, on this beach, uh, this once peaceful beach um, that that sits on the English Channel, and they carved out a uh, they carve out a spot finally for the first time in in several years on the European continent because uh, Europe had become this fortress. The Nazis had sort of taken over the whole of Europe. They they'd swept through all of it, and now all of Europe was basically under Nazi control. And the Allies were looking for a way to get on the continent. They knew they just needed to get a, a way on the continent and, and get their forces uh, sort of uh, gathered there so they could start to move through the rest of the continent, get to Berlin, and win the war. Uh, and, and on that day, uh, on D-Day, the, the Allies took the beach. At great cost, they were, they were storming these once peaceful beaches and turning the water of the English Channel red that day. It was a it was, a, it was a massive battle, um, but one that was ultimately successful and turned uh, Europe into a place where now the Allies had a, had a foothold w- into it where that they could push into and sort of take the country back. Because at this point, the Allies had superior numbers. They had better weapons. They were, they were better supplied. They were just in a better shape to actually go and win uh, World War II. But now here's the thing. The war didn't end on that day. Uh, the Nazis burrowed in and they made every single inch of of the taking back of Europe for the Allies as incredibly hard as possible. Um, And they made life hell not just for 
uh, the soldiers of the, of the allies, but also the non-combatants, the people that were living there trying to, to st- even living under Nazi rule, but the French people, the, the Polish people, all these different people that are, are trying to carve out a living, they became, uh, they became targets in the middle of this, this great big battle. And the Nazis didn't really care who, uh, who they took out as they went down. And so it just was this, this desperate group of Nazi soldiers that were fueled by this sort of uh, savage, gritty, uh, depressing um, uh, pushback to what they knew was inevitable victory for the Allies. And, and, and they made the Allies fight all the way to Berlin, turning the entire continent into a war zone. Now, as we sort of take that picture back on us to, uh, and bring it into sort of the context of, of what we might call spiritual warfare, the kingdom of God coming to earth, we're talking about a similar type of picture. Uh, except now the whole world is Europe. The whole world has been this stronghold for the kingdom of uh, the Satan, the, the prince of this world, as, as Jesus calls him in John 12, um, for, for centuries. And Jesus uh, coming uh, in, in the incarnation, that's D-Day. That's God carving out, um, carving out a spot uh, uh, in, uh, on the earth where he would begin to now spread the kingdom and take it back. And so the the incarnation, God coming, that's D-Day. And the cross and the resurrection, that's the victory on the beach. That's the turning point where 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 now it is assured that God's victory will come and has has come in a sense fully because of what Jesus accomplishes that day. But the world is still in the process of being taken back. And the enemies, the, the ones who are who are part of the force that has has been occupying our world for so long, they're desperate and they're trying to create. They're fine create, creating casualties. They're fine making things as miserable as possible uh, for people as they try to take out as many uh, people as they can with them as they go. And that's basically what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God coming on earth and we talk about spiritual warfare. That's sort of the context in which that's taking place in. And so when we do this, sur- this sort of mini-series of Devil's Advocate, uh, we're talking about how the opposition that Jesus faces um, is ultimately fueled by these background forces, even if they, may, they remain largely silent in the book of John. That's sort of the context. A- and we see them start to push back here, and we see that the, their strategies, again, like I said, this is, not a, this is not a military victory or battle in the sense that we think of. It's fought at the war of uh, of, of strategies that are crafty and attractive false narratives or beliefs that, that counter belief in the kingdom of God, belief in, the, in, in Jesus as he comes and he spreads God's gracious and peaceful and loving reign all across the earth. Um, and all that impacts how we live and what actually takes place here on earth. Okay, that's sort of the, the context. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the opposition that Jesus faces and sort of talk about what that looks like in our own current day today as well, as we think about opposition to the gospel, to the church, to Jesus now in our present day. And we're going to do our best to sort of connect the dots between the two times and places. I'm actually, like I said, I'm actually really excited for this series. I think it'll be a lot of fun as we sort of examine sort of what's going on in our world today and how we can think through um, how to sort of see the kingdom of God come more fully and understand the opposition that we're facing as we try to be agents of that. Okay, so let's get into the passage a little bit and let's try to explain a little what's going on here. We'll jump, we'll start off here in in John uh, 6, 52 to 53. Okay, and so this is where we start to really see the opposition come up. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
So remember, we're going back to last week. This is sort of a, a, a picking up where, where we left off last week, uh, that Jesus has called himself the bread of life. And now remember, the people had been waiting for a political Messiah to come. They'd been waiting for someone who would uh, feed them, would care for them, would drive out the Romans. And we see that the, the people actually try to seize Jesus and make him, force him to be their king on that day. Um, and, and so uh, we see that, that that tension, that need is really high and being expressed here. And Jesus had pushed back against them. He had fed them, right? He had said that I do care that your needs are met. And that is a part of what is coming as I come to earth, as, as I bring this kingdom to earth. But there is a deeper reality. There's something beyond that that you need, that you need to understand that is, that is going to fuel any sort of physical uh, healing and restoration that comes on earth. There needs to become something deeper than that. And this had been hard for some people to swallow, um, especially when people start to consider the fact that actually, you know, we know this guy, we know his parents, um, you know, it, it, that's Joseph and Mary's kid, their, 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 their oldest kid. And we remember like him growing up. This seems weird that he's taking this stuff on. He's saying stuff that we don't necessarily like. We see that in verse 42. And Jesus actually seems like he's kind of, uh, intentionally framing what he's talking about in a bit of an offensive way. He talks about eating his body and drinking his blood, which already sounds a little uh, macabre to us today. But if you're a Jewish person at that time, you are you are equally you're doubly offended by it because in the law of Moses there is this. Um, uh, it's it's forbidden for uh, for someone to drink blood or eat meat with blood still in it, um, and and so obviously Jesus is speaking symbolically here. We can pick up on that uh, for sure here, but it was very confusing, and like I said, I think intentionally a bit uh, stepping on the toes of the people Jesus is talking to here, and so they respond to them in that way. Um, obviously, Jesus doesn't, he's not saying, I want you to be cannibals or zombies and eat people's flesh. That's not what he's saying here, but it's, we still find that this is still offensive to the people. Um, and so the Jews uh, begin to argue uh, sharply among themselves, we see. Um, and Jesus says, "Listen, unless you eat the the son of uh, the the flesh of the Son of Man and and you drink his blood, you have no life in you." And so this continue this turns people away as well. They're saying, "You basically the only way to to have life is to uh, find it within me." And so people start to turn away from him. We see this in verse sixty six. From from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So I think this is this is. Um, something we, we still see today, where, where people you might not expect, people who seem to be excited to follow Jesus, you, you find them at some point turning away and walking away from the faith. And, and we, we maybe have all seen this, where either friends or family have turned away. Uh, sometimes we see famous people, uh, people with a high profile, uh, turn away from the faith. There's been a couple of those lately that have sort of shocked uh, some people as they've seen that happen. And I think it's hard for us to see, and one of our responses is to try and, 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 and moderate maybe the culturally abrasive edges of the gospel, to try and make it more palatable, to make it uh, seem more um, enticing to people by, by, by neutering it, in a sense, by taking away what it actually is so that it's easier for people to swallow. And like, make no mistake, this takes place in both what we would call conservative and liberal ways, I think, where, where the gospel gets assimilated into things that people maybe want to hear and are told this is what Christianity is. See, it's not that bad, actually. It's kind of exactly what you want already as a way to sort of get people to uh, respond to it. And that's not 
like something we see that Jesus is okay doing. He he doesn't see controversy as a problem in and of itself, even if it's going to lose him some followers. We actually see that's not something he shies away from. He, to him, truth is more important than influence, and I think that's something that our uh, society needs to hear. Um, and so what he does is he continues on. In verses 62 and 64, he says, then what what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where uh, he was before? The Spirit gives life. The, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit of life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. So when he's talking about his ascent here, he could be talking about one of two things. Uh, you can see a couple of different views within commentaries if you check them out. And The first one is uh, that he's talking about ascending back to heaven where he starts off in the prologue of the book. That's what one commentary I read said that. This is what Jesus is talking about in his ascent. Um, now, I actually take the second position. I think that this makes a little bit more sense, where his ascent refers to the, rec- the cross, ascending on to the cross. And, um, and, and so uh, there's a couple reasons why I think that that's the case. First of all, people actually see Jesus lifted up, just like Jesus says here. What if you see the man ascend to where he was before? He's, a, he's a, assuming people will see that, right? And people see him, especially within the book of John, lifted up on the cross, and some similar type of language that he uses in chapter 3 when he talks about himself being lifted up is being used here again. Um, and also in the book of John, we see that, that John is really um, aware of connecting Jesus' glory specifically in he, who Jesus is to him specifically on the cross. That is, that is him in his most supreme and, and full glory. And, and so, um, when Jesus is on the cross in his supreme glory, we see his love most fully revealed. And what I think Jesus is saying here is that uh, being on the cross, being revealed supremely in love uh, for, for the entire world is the same as me being in my glory before I, I entered into humanity. And, and if you really think about the, the paradox of that and how radical of a statement that is, it's really mind-blowing. But, but what he's saying here, if, if that's right, is that Jesus on the cross is, is the same supreme glory uh, that he had when he existed um, outside of the world, uh, in the Godhead, in heaven, right? All these different things that we, th- we think of as so lofty and heavenly, and we, 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 you know, we, we, we have these pictures of Jesus on the clouds and shining bright like a, like a, a luminescent light bulb or something like that. Uh, th- that same glory should also be applied to Jesus as he's on the cross, because that is where we see his love um, most fully expressed. Now, and I think another reason that this is an attractive way to interpret this is it fits better with offense, with offending people, um, because um, how much more offended would people be when they hear that God's accomplishing his agenda, that God is most supremely revealed when he is getting put on death row uh, for a state execution as nothing more than just a failed Messiah, someone who uh, failed the people yet again. And Jesus, for those people who view Jesus on the cross that way as a failed Messiah, they would not be the first time that they had looked to someone to be their savior who had failed them. At least in that moment, they feel like they felt as if Jesus had failed them. How offensive would that be to say that this is, uh, this is the supreme glory of God to people? Of course, that, that's offensive. Um, and so um, I think it's, it's good for us to sort of ask the question here, um, 
what do we do when, when people are offended by the gospel, by what they hear? And that's really today's opposition that I want us to focus on, is, is today's sort of assumption that, we, that many people have today that if, if something is offensive, it's not true. For, for many people, um, if, if, if you're offended, that is a reason for you to tune out. That is enough for you to disregard whatever someone is saying, to, to sort of uh, not even pay attention to whether or not it's true. If it's offensive, then you don't have to take it. You don't have to listen to it. If, if anything, you can point back at it and say that this is a harmful, uh, evil thing because I find myself offended. And if we're being honest, there are parts of Christianity, of the gospel, that are offensive to people in our society. I don't think that it's a bad thing to admit that some people are going to find themselves offended to the gospel. Um, that, that's just, that's just a, a part of, of what it means for the kingdom of God to come into a hostile territory and to invade it. That's not a bad thing. If you don't find yourself offended at parts of the gospel, maybe you're not understanding it. I actually think that that's something to ponder maybe. Um, and we can find ourselves I- embarrassed maybe by that and, and start to look at Christianity as maybe de- deficient in some way. And I definitely think there's a view in our society that Christianity is deficient. Uh, I think for a long time, maybe more more so for our parents' generation, that the problem with Christianity was that uh, faith uh, was seen as intellectually empty, as as not standing up to um, other systems of thought, that they were just more intellectually um, uh, strong. But today, I think really the the the, the problem that that Christianity faces oftentimes is that it is a morally empty. Uh, view, to, to way to view the world. And that's actually a twist for most of the history of the Christian world. Uh, uh, for, for, for Christianity, which for so long in the West was seen as sort of the high ground of what morality was, today it's really, I think for a lot of people, it's just kind of morally neutral. It's not the high ground, um, and it only has truth, just like everything else, if it gives you happiness. And so you can pick it as the high ground of morality in your own life, but don't tell anyone else that, that, that that's true. We just don't see anything as having that sort of high, high view. And in some places, Christianity is not even that. It's, uh, it's repressive. It's destructive. It's harmful. It, it, it's a product of a fast-fitting old world, which is quickly being replaced by something new and much better. Uh, it's bad for society, and, and it is definitely looking up at the moral high ground, which is expressed in some other uh, system of thought. Now, where does this come from? I think it's, it's good for us to have an understanding of why this is true in our society. And I think it starts with a story. I think f- before we can talk about the morality of that, we have to understand the story that most people in the West inhabit. I'm taking this from a guy named uh, Mark Sayers. He's a pastor at a, at a church in New Zealand, and he's come up with something uh, called the Secular Salvation Schema. It's a it's a, it's a catchy thing. You, you remember the word. Um, but what he's talking about here is this sort of uh, salvation story that many people in the secularized world have. They take on without understanding it. And he frames it in a way that, so that it parallels uh, the Christian story. And so you, you sometimes might hear uh, the, the story of Christianity expressed in four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And you can plot out the story of what God is doing in the world in those, in those four words. And you have to understand what God is doing in the context of all four of those things. Creation, God creates the world, it's good. The fall, sin enters the world. It, it is turned over to uh, these, these forces of darkness because humans uh, choose to worship them instead of God. Uh, redemption, Jesus sets us free, sets us and the rest of creation free from sin's power by what he does on the cross. And then finally, restoration. 
creation. Humans and all of creation are restored back to what they were when God created it. All right? There's a secular version of this story that I think, again, people are not aware that they're living in this story, but it is the story that many people take on, and Christians, in a sense, I think, also can take this story on themselves as well, because uh, we're, just, we're living in the middle of this society that, that preaches this gospel to us constantly. Uh, in the secular version of, of creation, we are, we are childlike. We are in tune with ourselves. We are untouched by any outside force. And think about how in, in lots of movies, um, there's a story about an adult who uh, needs to get back in touch with their childhood or something. They, they need to go back to who they were before they got messed up by a society that sort of came on them and enforced all these other things that they felt like they had to follow now, like rules and their job and their marriage and all these things sort of ruined them in a sense. And they need to go back to being a kid again, right? That's the story of a lot of movies that we watch today. And that shows us our sort of sense of what the fall is. The fall in our, in our secular, the secular version of salvation is that society or your family or your job or even a religion cons- puts some constraint on us and that imposes onto us a self that isn't our true self. And so we have to live out of this self that is given to us by someone else at this, and that, that stops us from being who we truly are. And so many people are stuck uh, in, in this sin of, of having something else put on them. They're fallen creatures. Redemption comes when you recognize that, that you need to be liberated from the things that society has put on you, whatever those are, and to become a truly free person, to throw those off of yourselves and live now as a radically free person who's not going to be told who they are, is going to choose who they are for themselves by looking inward, by going back to who they were before society tried to make them something that they weren't. And so restoration now is, 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 is this truly free life is lived, free to completely live your desires out. Um, and, and, and so from this story now that many people uh, are, are living and inhabiting, which is really the story of so many movies and TV shows and, and books and, and songs, like this is the story that's being told in so many of them. From, from that story, you create a sort of morality. And one of my favorite authors, uh, N.T. Wright, calls this emotivism. And, uh, and, and um, uh, he has a great quote on it. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'm going to read it here, here to, to you, where he talks about how this cr- becomes a morality for many people. The emotivist movement insists that all moral discar- discourse can be reduced in any case to statements of likes and dislikes. Murder is wrong simply means, I don't like murder. Giving to charity is good means I like people giving to charity. From this point of view, following moral rules and following your own inclinations both boil down to pretty much the same thing. Let me read that again. Uh, From this point of view, following moral rules and following your own inclinations, your own desires, both boil down to pretty much the same thing. And so many today assume, without much ado, Uh, that roughly what Jesus himself taught and what Christian living ought to be all about is this. Be yourself. Don't let anyone else dictate to you. Don't let other people's systems or phobias cramp your style. Be honest about what you're really feeling and desiring. Get in touch with the bits of yourself that you've been screening out. Make friends with them and be true to them. Anything else will result in a diminishing of your true, unique 
uh, wonderful self. So this moralism uh, that, that comes from emotivism is w- the world that many of us live in. And next week, we're going to talk more specifically about the sort of the new uh, legalism, the new moralism that we experience that kind of, sort of comes off of this. So we're not going to go too much further with that now, but it's helpful to get a sense of, of what, what it looks like in the world we're living in and, and what it means, why, why we think if we're offended by something that we can just disregard it. This is why. Th- this is the reason why. Is because we base everything in what we feel, and we think that's what it means to be a fully human person, is to, to live only out of our feelings and those alone. And so when it comes to Jesus, many people feel like they have to choose to be offended and have their desires repressed and accept a Lord or a master, or to be free and happy. And so for us, the application today um, and from, from, the, from the book of John, is that we must, or this is our first point of application at least, is that we have to decide what life we want to partake in. What, what's the, what, where do we want to find life coming from us? The life that comes from above, that comes from Jesus, the one who is supremely revealed on the cross in love for us, uh, defeating the powers of evil in the world, or the life that we're going to create out of our own desires. Uh, and in verse 63, Jesus says that the spirit gives life, but the flesh counts for nothing. And you think he's kind of drawing on this contrast here. Okay, he's kind of saying, you can live out of your flesh. You can live out of your desires, but that ultimately will count for nothing. It will not give you life, but the spirit, the thing that I am bringing, will bring true life. And so we have to ask ourselves, what matters more? Our desires, our flesh, being our own masters, or actually finding true life? Uh, and if many people are honest, they would, they would choose freedom. They would choose their flesh. That's, that's, we find that so many characters in TV uh, shows and movies that we watch, they would rather be free and independent. And honestly, they'd rather be miserable, I think, than receive true life freely that is given to them from someone else. Uh, and I think we maybe know people who are like that, who, who are so uh, concerned with freedom that they would actually rather be miserable looking for that constantly, day in and day out, and not actually finding true life. Now, here, here's the thing. When, when our feelings are flesh, like Jesus is talking about in the passage, when those are our master, we will find ourselves sadly disappointed because, because of what we're talking about here, right? The, this, 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 this secular salvation story that we talk about, we treat our feelings like they are omnipotent, they're godlike, they have got insight into eternal happiness and a completely fulfilled life as if they know us because they were, they were our creator, now, I'm sorry, your feelings are not that smart, okay? They just are not that smart. That is way too much pressure to put on your feelings. They are complex reactions that the brain has to outside stimuli. Nothing. That's what your feelings are, okay? Uh, th- they can be manipulated. They can be deceived. They can be misunderstood. And advertir- advertisers who tell us to follow our feelings all the time are the ones who are manipulating our feelings. If you think about the irony of that, that we are told oftentimes by many people in the world uh, to follow our feelings, what they're doing is they're trying to manipulate us so that our feelings lead us to buy their product or, or give them our attention or something like that. That's what's often going on, but we're told by those people that, 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 that that's what we should be doing. And you're going to find oftentimes that your feelings aren't leading you anywhere. Okay, They might seem like they are, but there's not some end goal that your feelings have in terms of where they're leading you. 
Now, on top of all that, they are going to conflict with other people's feelings all the time. If we truly made a society based on this morality that many of us live in, it would be totally chaotic because our feelings are not matching up with everybody else's feelings. It would create this sort of, this sort of chaos. One person's morality would conflict with another, and there would be no way to resolve it. Okay, so this morality just obviously it falls apart when you really truly look at it. Now, okay, let let me full stop here. Let me first say before I go any further that our feelings do matter. They're incredibly important. We have to know our feelings. We have to uh, delight in our feelings. We have to understand them, and we have to understand other people's feelings too. We have to listen. We have to pay attention to what people feel. Okay, so don't hear me saying that that we we can't. We should not be doing that with our feelings and with the feelings of other people, okay? Uh, but they just make terrible masters. We have to recognize that. If we're going to be ruled by our feelings, they're not going to bring us uh, happiness any more than our belly button is going to, okay? That, that's just the truth of our feelings. And so when we quit asking our feelings to uh, be something that they aren't supposed to be, we can find happiness and satisfaction by acquiring the true life that Jesus is bringing. Now, to do this, we have to be willing to give up control and to not know everything. And, and, and so, and we, we see this in John uh, 6, 67 to 69. Okay, Jesus is, he's found some of these people have left him now. He, in verse 66, we're told that some disciples, disciples have uh, deserted him. Uh, and Jesus turns to the 12, th- this, this closest group of disciples that he has, and he says to them, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asks the 12. Uh, Jesus says, so I guess everyone's leaving now. What, what are you guys going to do? And Simon Peter, uh, God bless Simon Peter, who always has the best responses in the Bible. Uh, he answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter, refle- refreshingly blunt, he's able to say so much in, in so little, says, Jesus, we don't totally get everything. Um but we believe. We know we believe. And those two things are different. Uh, they can still coexist. Not understanding, but still believing. Those things seem like, they, to me, they can still go together. And that not knowing everything with you it, it is better than knowing everything with anybody else. That's the sort of faith that Peter is demonstrating, or that is saying here. They're as good as others might seem, or we don't know where else we would go. Uh, not knowing with you is better than knowing everything with anyone else. And that's our last point of application today, that not knowing with Jesus is still better than knowing everything with anything else. And so we need to let Jesus draw uh, us to himself. You need to let Jesus draw you to himself. That's what Jesus talks about a little bit in this passage. Okay. Uh, some people feel like they can't be Christians. They can't. They might like the gospel. They might think it sounds pretty good in principle. But for them, there's some loose ends. There's some things that don't make sense. Maybe there's still some offense there, and and that that doesn't fit within their sort of the secular salvation schema story that they're living in, or sort of this emotivism, this default emotivism morality that they have. And and, and so for them, these these things are enough to stop them from wanting to seek Jesus out to find true life. And it's true. If we're being honest, there are definitely loose ends within Christianity. I am not here to say that every every single thing is answered perfectly, that there aren't th- hard things that we have to take on as Christians sometimes that don't make sense to us, maybe for our whole lives, that we will we will continue to wrestle through constantly. And But I, what I'm saying is that that's not a bad thing necessarily. Because uh, here's what no other worldview will tell you, um, uh, that, that no worldview 
has no no questions within it. Any sort of worldview, any any sort of default belief that we're going to take on is going to have loose ends to it. It's going to have things that, that do not have perfect answers, that are going to be have things that are legitimately hard challenges to it. So what we should be asking instead of which, instead of the question, which worldview has all the answers and therefore doesn't really challenge me ever, uh, the question we should actually be asking, I think, the better question to be asking is we seek out who to follow, who to believe, who to love, uh, is which worldview has questions that I'm comfortable living with? And the reason why I think Christianity is the one where we can feel secure in that feeling is because uh, despite not understanding everything, we still know that the thing that is understood, the thing that is that never fails, is that it that everything comes back to Jesus, and it comes back to Jesus revealed in glory on the cross in love. That His supreme glory of who He is is when He's ascended on the cross in love, bearing our sin, taking on uh, all the evil that the world had to throw at Him, and conquering it in love to set us free from our sins and the power of sin in the rest of the world. This is his supreme expression. And so the base assumption of Christianity is that we are radically loved by the God of the universe even if other things remain unsettled and even if God is silent. And this is why it brings life to us. This is the reason that we find life. It's because in the midst of everything else, even when we feel insecure, even when we feel like everything else is crumbling at our feet, we can know that we are still loved and we can find that love for us every time we look to the cross. We think of Jesus revealed fully in who he is. In the moment, we might not feel, uh, we might not feel totally um, understanding. We might feel challenged in some way. But we can know that we're still loved. We're still sought out. We're still drawn to Jesus. Because Christianity is not just a set of beliefs, okay? That is not what it is. It's a storm that seeks us out and doggedly loves us. Uh, it's an irresistible force that draws us into the very very center of its beating heart. Um, and, and so rather than self-love, the thing that we're told to, which really is to do is just a lot of time, it's empty words. It's just empty stuff for us to feel better about ourselves. We actually can feel loved and know from the supreme expression of who God is that we are loved by Jesus because of what he did for us on the cross that day, 2,000 years ago. We can know we are loved by him. That is the, that is the power of his love were the real things that held him nailed to that cross. It was not physical nails. It was not uh, the Romans that drove him there, um, although they were doing that as well. The thing that held Jesus onto that cross was his love for us. And we can remain secure in that, even when nothing else in the moment maybe makes sense to us. We can feel free to, 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 to feel challenged, in a sense, um, so that we may uh, s- stay firm and secure in, in, in the center of what Christianity is. Um, okay, so I'm going to pray for us to close, and then if we have any questions, uh, Julie's saying we don't have any questions. So I'm going to pray for us to close here, and then we will we'll head into communion. God, we thank you that you chose not to reveal yourself to us by some vision in the sky of a God lofty and far away from us, telling us he loved us without us actually seeing that in person, but we know you love us because when we look at you in your supreme glory, we find you on the cross. Uh, arms open wide, inviting the whole world in for us, saying, I am taking on myself the evil in this world, the sin 
inside of everybody in this world because uh, uh, of the chains that they find on themselves, because of this other kingdom that is here. And I d- I'm going to defeat that with my love as, as I invite people in to experience that love, to be a part of this kingdom, which is a different and, and better kingdom in a way that's not even quantifiable to, 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 to put these two things up against each other. Um, we thank you that that is who you are and we can rest secure in that even when all other things around us feel like they're crumbling. They feel like they don't make sense. We may feel offended. We may feel like we don't get what's going on, Lord. We can know that we're loved. We see that on the cross. We feel it when we seek you out, God. I pray that you would overwhelm us with your love. You would overwhelm uh, the, the people that we see on a regular basis with your love that is manifesting through us, God. I pray that we would be agents of your love, that people would see your love as they look to us, as we uh, model Christ's love by going out ourselves, by, by taking on other people's sin and, and hardship and problems on ourselves as we seek to love those around us as well. Um, and as we, um, as, we, as we go out and we try to shine that glory, Lord, as we seek more and more to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus, Lord, I pray that people would see your love through us, Lord, in our neighborhood, uh, in our city, um, online, Lord, th- whatever way that we have to impact people, Lord, make us agents of your love and help us to experience that love so that uh, we are overflowing with it regularly, Lord. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.